There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. The high drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzy Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for it inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road, the number two, Atlanta. Now, hit the road with your hosts, Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Road to Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I am one of your hosts, Eric Cole. You may recognize me at, as Leprechaun on Twitter or from my work over on Talking Chop or right here on Road to Atlanta. Joining me today, we have first, Garrett Spain. You may recognize him as Braves MILB. Uh, he's been known as Braves Farm Updates and then several other iterations of that name. Garrett, how are you, sir? I'm good. Also, we have Matt Powers. You may recognize him from his work on Talking Chop, uh, or you can follow him on Twitter at, Bra- at MattPowers31. Matt, how are you? Good. All right, now we got to the, through the portion where everyone uh, is actually interested in listening to. We are joined by a really special guest today. Um, he is currently in his second stint with Fangraphs, covering prospects and the draft and basically anything and everything that has to do with amateur or minor league or prospecting, if you will. Uh, and in between that, he was a member of the Braves front office. We have one Kylie McDaniel. Kylie, how are you, sir? I, I will also try to keep things short. I am good. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you coming on. I know you're busy uh, doing various scouting, getting ready for the draft. Uh, I think you had a, made a recent trip to the Dominican as well, uh, getting your frequent flyer miles that way. Yep, and I was actually, uh, I guess if you if you follow me on Twitter, I won't even plug it. You can find it if you want to find it. Uh, there were three GMs at the game I went to last night, so I get, I've uh, been locking into some good games. Honestly, that, that the story wasn't the, the best story wasn't the three GMs. It was the no. the guy the guy shotgunning the beers that you were chronicling. Because <laughs> I've found that um, SEC football tailgating is slowly finding its way into SEC baseball. I was not prepared for it to find its way into somewhat rural baseball in like the east coast of florida for high schools so that that was a little surprising but there were also like over a hundred scouts there and there like was not even close to a seat open so maybe this was just like you know they're you know it's like friday night lights or something i don't know (laughs) east coast of florida is a weird place because it's like once you get five miles off of the uh, off of the ocean, it like turns into like inland Alabama. So. <laughs> oh, oh, well, okay. For, for a different day, we'll we'll chronicle our adventures in central to eastern Florida as well. Uh, which, <laughs> w- short answer, I fully believe it, hundred percent. Um, but it's wacky. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've, it's, I've lived, I'd say the majority of my life in the central part of Florida, and once you get off the coast, it gets real weird. Yeah, not what I was expecting. Um, I also enjoyed that there's two forms of weather: the surface of the sun and monsoon. But uh, yeah, but anyway, that's and either the four, the four o'clock rain every day. Yeah, there's there's some real quirks to it, which you learn in the GCL when it's you know the game starts at 
noon, the game ends at three, and you're racing to get it over before the the rain comes. It's that's happened with a couple different teams. Oh yeah. uh, well, yeah, we actually <laughs> yeah, the rain actually came on so fast when we were watching the GCL that like the players had to come hide in the stands with us. Which, given that there's just basically big metal bleachers, that didn't seem like the safest form of them, but they could like they had to get up really quick. They came in really fast. <laughs> it it gets on you fast. Yeah, it's not not ideal. I. It's funny because they also play the games around noon so that they don't take away from the attendance of the Florida State League games at night, which is funny because nobody really goes to either of those games. <laughs> but Arizona, they play the rookie league games often in stadiums at night, which is, you know, perfect when it's, you know, things get a little cooler in the desert at night and it's in a stadium and you don't have the sun. Like, that's how you should do it. But for some reason, you know, and you also don't have the humidity out there. So, I, yeah, the GCL is not a great experience. But, you know, oftentimes there's players. And so, you know. People are there. Well, and I will say... Not fans, just, you know, people in a professional capacity. <laughs> well, see, our experience with the GCL was much better than the Florida State League because three straight games we tried to go to see the Florida State League were rained out. We actually got to see one Dunedin game. Uh, we actually drove all the way across the state to go find them. Man. That's <laughs> my fault. Yeah. Oh, God. That, that's <laughs> definitely the worst stadium in Florida, too. I mean, <sighs> well, like, not even close. Yeah, the, the, food, the food in Dunedin was pretty good, though, so I will say that. Um, yeah, Dunedin nice. Brewery was amazing. People there have always been nice to me. That's never been a problem. And you sit close to the field, so, so because there's no one there, I've had a couple of times where an um, uh, umpire and a manager start fighting, you know, verbally, and you can hear every single word they're saying, which is entertaining because you don't always you're not always able to hear every word they say, and then you realize like they're not really saying anything, they're just sort of yelling for yelling's sake. But you know, curious Kylie would always like to know. <laughs> what was going on there, and now, now sadly, I know, so the, the mystery's gone. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've kind of got our tales of why we hate some aspects of the state of Florida, uh, let's get into this, and I want to start off with this kind of a, a general question. Uh, you started off, well, I say started off, you, you had a stint with Fangraphs, um, you know, doing prospect coverage for a while, and then you spent time in the Braves' front office, and now you're back with Fangraphs. Uh, in your mind, what was what's the, the biggest change you've made as a result of that time with the Braves in terms of how you evaluate prospects, whether it be like a, a tool that maybe you value more or less now, or that there's a certain type of data that you find more valuable now? I mean, what what's kind of the biggest change for you? Yeah, I would say I'm in a unique position uh, relative to other um, writers uh, because I was on the team side when the sort of stack cast, track man, all that kind of stuff uh, was becoming like a sort of a big tool. Uh, so I know, even though I don't have access to that date anymore, like I know what it looks like and how to recognize with your eyes some of the things that are the most important things and... Um, you know, the impact that can have if somebody says, oh, this guy's exit VLOs are X, Y, or Z. I'm like, oh, those four or five teams are probably going to be really into it. And he might end up in, you know, this part of the draft or they might have him at this part of their farm system on internal rankings, things like that. Um, that's probably the most important part. And I think it's also like a, I've written about this already, but the uh, the sort of stats versus scout thing way back when Moneyball happened in, you know, 2003 or whenever it was. Um, was drastically overblown. Uh, but now I think it's actually a legitimate thing and is sort of undercovered and not talked about enough because with StatCast, if you were to put that in the SEC, uh, you could then make a case that I would, I wouldn't make the case, but you could make a case that scouts are essentially marginalized at that point because the things that they could give you, like going on the in-home visits, um, you know, getting signability, knowing makeup, stuff like that, like it becomes a smaller uh, 
fraction of what the decision-making is if you can sort of perfectly dial in uh, how far they're hitting the ball in batting practice, how good they are defensively, what they do in the bases, what their speed is. You can then quantify instincts, and these are the kinds of balls they're hitting. Like, all the things that a scout – it would seem silly to ask a scout, what did you think in the two games you saw when we have every inch of every game – you know, for three years, you know, 120 home games or whatever it is, um, like sort of perfectly calibrated and measured. It's like the idea of a scout singing for two games is kind of silly. Like him going for a meeting, I'd want, I'd still want to know that. But what he saw for two games is, you know, it's unlikely he'd give you some earth shattering piece of information. Okay, let's uh, talk about Ronald Acuna because that's kind of who everyone wants to hear about. Um, how early in his development did you realize that he was could be a very special player, and what was the biggest um, development he made from his time to rookie ball to his breakout season last year? Uh, trying to, I guess I came in after the 2015 season. Uh, so I, you know, when I, when I came in was sort of getting up to date on you know who all the prospects were, and I hadn't been to the affiliate to see all the all the players. So I just pulled up. Acuna's uh, um, number. So he had 237 plate appearances in rookie ball in 15, his first professional experience. So at that point, I had been told during the season when I was writing, like, hey, this guy's pretty good. Like, uh, Izzy Wilson, you know, hit a bunch of home runs in the GCL, but this is the guy. And I had never heard the name before. Obviously, he had just signed and just showed up in pro ball, so he was just sort of a new guy. But I interpreted that as, in the fangrass parlance, like, oh, put this guy on the list as a 40. Like, he's somewhere in the 20s on the team uh, in the organization, as opposed to sticking him 50th or 60th, you know, far down the others of note thing. And then when I got in the front office, I could then see some of the TrackMan stuff and, you know, talk to some of the guys. And I think even, like, the big league staff had seen him at Instructs. Uh, Like, some high-level guys had seen him, where normally if a guy just plays a little bit in short season, it's not like all the heavy hitters are going in to see the guys at Danville. Like, they might go in for a few days, but they're not going to, like, really bear down on every single player. Uh, So it became clear at that point um, when we could compare him, you know, just, like, exit velocity-wise for Acuna, a guy that's, you know, an up-the-middle teenager that was, I guess, 18 at the time two guys that were 22 in double A AA and triple A and he was like the same or better as they were. And you know, these guys are like often corner guys you're comparing him to. And you're like, Oh, this is, this is not just pretty good or jumps off the field at you. This is, um, you know, unless he gets hurt, you know, knock on wood, this guy's got a way higher ceiling than even you would suggest when you watch him be the best player on the field. Um, and then it sort of progressed from there. Obviously, in 16, he was hurt a little bit. So it was a little bit of like we all knew he was really good. And the scouts that saw him when he was healthy would sort of ask me, like, hey, this guy's really good. Right? I was like, oh, yeah, you're never going to get him. Like, put your report in, but you're not getting this guy. You know? And they're like, oh, OK, so you guys. I'm like, yeah, yeah we know. Like, don't, don't waste your time. And then in 17, I think uh, he's figured out, like, oh, the ball comes off my bat like a rocket. I should probably put it in the air more. And I don't think it was necessarily like, you know, he goes to driveline over the summer or over the winter or anything like that. Like, I I think he sort of figured it out. And then often when the ball comes off your bat like a rocket, you don't even have to pull it, which I think you guys have probably seen examples of it going to the opposite field. And the same thing with Austin Riley. Um, And so I think that was the main thing is I think it would have I think a lot of stuff could have happened in 16 if you played the whole year. Uh, but because it was sort of, you know, starting, stopping, you didn't really want to push him that much. And then in 17, you start pushing him and you see, like, 
you know, sometimes when you see guys where the strikeout rate goes down and the production goes up as you progress, you're like, oh, he must have been bored in high A. And I don't know if that was the case, but the numbers would suggest that, uh, which makes you think maybe he was bored in 16. He was just hurt, so we couldn't really see in the performance because, you know, he'd go for a couple weeks and, you know, then he wasn't playing. So it was, yeah, it was one of those things where I think being on, you know, on the team that he was with, you know, a little bit more a little earlier but all the teams that had that track rate stuff could, could tell he was a guy like early on. And, you know, if not all 30, like 25 of the teams could have seen that. Wow. So our next question is actually about Colby Allard. And we've heard from several folks about his diminished fastball, which has affected his stock quite a bit in the eyes of some. So do you see him possibly being able to gain more velocity as he matures physically or do you think he's more of a guy who's going to have to learn to excel without that extra velocity uh he's interesting because uh, the first time i saw him was at the the pg national showcase um which is r- right after the previous year's draft uh so he was drafted as a 17 year old so that he was 16 at this showcase and he was 90 93 three above average pitches above average command like really impressive and then at the Perfect Game All-American uh, thing in August, he hit either 96 or 97. And at that point, everyone went from this guy is a first rounder to, oh, this guy might have three plus pitches. You know, this guy might be, you know, generational, et cetera, et cetera. And then essentially from that point forward, he went reverted back to what he was at PG National. The, the low 90s, everything's above average, nothing plus. And he's not especially big. The upside isn't enormous. But that that moment, that one inning where he hit 97 as a 16-year-old, everybody thought that was a glimpse of his trajectory. And he would be the rare, like not necessarily physically projectable guy who would continue throwing harder just because he was so young. He was sort of figuring it out. Uh, And it just didn't happen. And that, you know, obviously there's always a risk and there's always a risk guys get hurt. He had the back issue. Um, So he I think he is what he is. And you covered some in the scouting report, but. He, he kind of works best, um, not necessarily the sinker. It's a little more of a four-seam fastball. He'll operate up in the zone because um, I think it also tunnels with his breaking ball best. And so obviously a guy that has an average to fringy fastball velocity working up in the zone where it doesn't move that much, you're going to have the possible issue of home runs and a lot of fly balls. But the way to get around that is if you have above-average off-speed stuff and above-average command, which he does. So I think there's a clear path to him being somewhere from a third to a fifth starter, depending on, you know, how things play out. And, you know, if the velo backs up and he's throwing 86, that's probably more of a fifth starter. If he's, you know, 90, 93, uh, it's probably a little more of a third starter, um, which is still a pretty big. Sorry, hold on a second. My dog is chewing on my coffee table right now. <laughs> that would be the <laughs> this is actually pretty far for the course for this podcast, Tyler. So. Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, sorry, she had a lot of energy and didn't quite to get to get it out today. Um, so I, I guess I don't think of Allard in terms of is he going to throw harder? Is he projectable? Like, is he you know going to be frontline or you know whatever? I think the the idea of him being uh, oh the Braves got him at twelve or thirteen or whatever it was, but he was a top five overall kind of candidate. That was based on promise that is probably not going to come through, but that you know that could mean he ends up being a third starter. Like that's not like a problem. Uh, so I would, I, I guess I would think of it more in terms of how does all the stuff that he has now, uh, how's it going to play in the big leagues? And is that going to be an above average starter or just like a pretty good starter? And I, I feel like that's his range of outcomes. Obviously, you know, these are just predictions. So he, he could be way better or way worse than that also. 
Uh, but I, I kind of think that's the the current thought process is it's a high probability, like lower ceiling. But then obviously a third star, that's a 60 future value. Like that's if we knew he was going to do that, he'd be one of the top 20 prospects in baseball. So it's not really that low of a ceiling, but it's I don't think it's a frontline guy anymore. Fair enough. Uh, another guy that's kind of had some injury issues and the, uh, there was some risk involved with his kind of projecting him is Ian Anderson. I've kind of I've been a little more bearish on him, not because I doubt the stuff. Like, I mean, talk. I mean, he like when he's on, you know, there's you know the potential for three plus pitches there, and he has that projectable frame that you know you think that maybe he could really even add more to what he already has. But there's been some injury concern between the kind of the minor stuff that the I think he had an oblique injury in high school and had like a I think it was pneumonia or something like that. Um, and then after that, you know, he missed some time last year and you know he was shut down he was shut down kind of early because of a like a, a stated innings limit and missed some time in the middle of the year. How concerned are you about his ability to stay healthy in the next, you know, over the next couple of years? And if he stays healthy, how how quickly could he move through the system? Uh, I'm not concerned uh, with Ian any more than you know any sort of young pitcher in general. Probably a little less than the average young pitcher, actually. Um, yeah, I I feel like he is. Uh, I guess in terms of ceilings, I guess that's how a lot of people digest these things. It's higher than Allard, I think. Uh, on the right day, he'll show you three pluses, and I think there's a pretty consistent, you know, he'll give you 355s on most days, and I think there's a chance for above average command. Um, his his issue I had seen the last year or two was he he also worked sort of up in the zone with a four-seamer, and on some occasions he'd be throwing, you know, 94, 97 for stretches, and it would be uh, sort of at the top of the zone, maybe with a little bit of life, and sort of run to the fringes of the zone. And with really bad umpires in the low levels uh, operating in a part of the zone they're not used to calling pitches at, especially at a velocity they're not used to seeing, uh, you'll get a guy falling behind at a bunch of counts, having to throw then more fastballs, and you could see him walk a guy on you know four fastballs when they're all like within inches of where they're supposed to be, and he's just kind of getting frustrated. So I think that's where some of the walk issues come from. I think the you know sort of pneumonia and oblique and stuff that he had in his draft year. I think those are. I don't think those are indicative of any um, issues, and I, I think there were. Oh, now she's got a bone. Um, I, I think um, that was not about Ian. That was about the dog. Um, I, I think the um, the other things from like in season. I, I got the impression none of those were ever, uh, you know, negative. It was more just uh, you know take a few weeks off. Let's limit your innings. If we're going to try to, we want you to finish the season in the rotation as opposed to you know stopping it two weeks early kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, because he has a good feel for the uh, for pitching and doesn't have a ton of effort in his delivery, and is you know pretty efficient and smart kid and all that kind of thing, I think he's probably got a little lower injury risk than the average um, pitching prospect. And I think the you know the stuff that he shows and the and the command potential, so I guess it hasn't necessarily shown up in the walks yet, even though I think it's there. Um, I think he might be a little more a little higher upside than some people are interpreting. All right, let's go to Eric's guy here. Um, Matt, Mike yes. Stroke is an interesting pro. Mike Stroke is an interesting prospect because he often gets the rap as a guy who doesn't really have great stuff, but he's always been successful and he's managed to get the best out of his stuff at every level. You agree with the assessment that he doesn't have great stuff, and whether or not you do, do you think that he could eventually be a top of the rotation starter if everything comes together? Or is that too much of a reach? Uh, I think he could. Uh, I think 
he's another guy that'll show you three pluses depending on when you see him. Um, I guess you've probably seen spring training every now and then he'll show you like 93, 95 with plus sync, which I think qualifies as plus. And I think the breaking ball, the changeup, especially last year, the changeup kind of developing into a uh, flashing plus uh, was key. And he's one of those guys with a really high spin rate breaking ball. I remember I asked him once. Uh, he, he's one of those very sort of cerebral guys that kind of wants to talk to whoever from the front offices in the stands. Uh, and I was asking because his breaking ball would look a little different from like inning to inning and start to start. And I would say, like, is that like a slider and a curveball? Because there was one that was like, you know, at 85 and one at like 78. He's like, nah, I just kind of like spin it and it just comes out a little different every time. I never really know what it's going to look like. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, but he, uh, and again, a lot of this is in, in the report, but just to sort of run through some of it, he he's one of those guys that's sort of, uh, you know, um, I guess curious sort of goofball, which is probably kind of how I am off the field, and is sort of an assassin on the mound. And his teammates love him, you know, great makeup guy, uh, you know, Canadian, so played hockey and um, all that kind of thing. And he has the stuff. I think a lot of times he'll be sort of, you know, 90, 92, 93 with the sinker and just sort of use it, you know, bowling ball in the bottom of the zone. And uh, I guess one of the things that's common with sinker ballers is they will not have great uh, sort of long strides. So the extension will be, you know, for effective velocity, kind of a negative. Um, so his fastball can play velocity-wise close to average. Obviously, you'll see 97s every now and then. Um, so, I mean, that's a little bit of a question is if he's going to be throwing a um, – uh, fastball that's you know effectively sitting around 90 then obviously that's probably not a lot of frontline guys are doing that but uh, as I'm sure you guys know like the all the research shows the velocity goes down you know roughly uh, one tick each year in the big leagues uh, so a lot of these guys when they get there throwing 95 when they become an ace they're not throwing 95 anymore so I think because of like all the mental stuff and the off-speed stuff and the command and the ability to improve and freaking dog um because of all that stuff I, I think he has the um you know the ability to to be that guy that sort of um uh becomes more than i think some of the projections sort of you know the median of the projections hasn't becoming uh and and i guess in that regard i would probably sort of buy on him if we're you know doing the, the higher low buy or sell game it's interesting now i'd like to hear some of your thoughts on a couple of the lesser talked about prospects in the system guys that are a little bit farther away not many people know about guys like you de la cruz jeffrey ramos as well as if you see any other sleepers in the system that have that kind of talent as well uh de la cruz is i guess in some ways a pretty typical latin arm and you know the short season where he'll he'll give you mid 90s he'll give you a plus breaking ball the commanded the change up lag behind but oftentimes when you're you know a younger guy with a live arm um you know you can you can make those adjustments um you know pretty quickly and those things can show up so obviously if you get you know 10 guys with that profile a couple of them are going to learn change up and command like the next year so you know there's a lot of different ways that could play out uh but he's on that road where you know if you had to guess it's probably a reliever uh but the um you know, the outcome of where he turns into, you know, like a legitimate, like top 100 guy, like that's possible, but it, you know, it's remote, uh, you know, 10% or whatever it is. Um, Ramos, I like, uh, I know the brave signed him after he was a little hyped as a July two guy. And I think maybe his price got a little too high. 
uh, given that he was, you know, limited as like a left field profile, often, you know, the left field kind of first base sort of guys are the ones that don't get their prices met. Cause in general, when you're trying to project so much, you want to take the shortstop that has a lot of margin for error. So, you know, he was signed, uh, I think it was a year after he was eligible, um, for a couple hundred thousand and immediately, you know, showed plus power and, you know, some ability to make adjustments and a little more athletic than probably you were guessing. And, you know, there's plenty of stuff there. And uh, he shows some ability to get to his power in games. At other times, it, you know, looks like he's swinging too hard and, you know, is, you know, ne- needs to make some of those adjustments. So uh, I think he's another guy similar to De La Cruz where it's oh, all the elements that are there. If that guy, you know, spends a whole season at low A and hits 260 with 20 home runs, then he's, you know, he's a real prospect. He's on the list. Like, you know, he's a guy, but you kind of need that year where he can sustain the performance and make the adjustments and, you know, kind of do all those things. Um, as far as other guys, I, I feel like somebody I had in the others of note on the list that doesn't really get a lot of attention was Jacob Webb. Uh, here he had Tommy John. He wasn't a big, uh, you know, prospect when, you know, with the pred- pedigree when he signed. Um, but it impressed me, uh, you know, running fastball up to 97, sitting low to mid 90s. Uh, 55, maybe 60 changeup. Breaking ball is inconsistent, but it's average or better. Uh, there were some similarities to Jacob Faria. Uh, I don't think Webb can start, but I think the stuff is comparable. And I don't think the command is, like, completely different. And so I think if he's another guy that if he can, um, you know, put together another healthy season, uh, you know, further away from Tommy John and uh, can perform, he's a guy that can go multiple innings. I think he kind of fits in um, – where things are going in the big leagues now where if you're a one inning guy you need to either be a, you know a left on left matchup guy or a guy that throws 100 or else you need to have three pitches to go multiple innings and you know i, I guess i talked about tuki tucson as possibly being that guy obviously at a much higher level but i think webb can be a guy that i think people are probably seeing as a guy that might get on a 40 man but probably not do very much and i think he might be able to do a little more than that Okay, so let's talk about a, a fun prospect and before we go any further i, I do want to say a lot of this conversation is predicated off the top the top 32 Braves prospect list that Kylie put out earlier this week. Uh, I highly recommend that you one read it just in general. If you want to you know turn off the podcast and go read that, uh, you definitely should. But it would also be helpful to kind of follow along in this conversation because you hinted at some things where he's he's been somewhat polarizing as a prospect this off season just in terms of like what national media kind of thinks of him, especially in regards to his hit and his hit tool and more specifically how much power he's going to end up developing. Because, you know, some people are more, whether or not they're bearish or bullish on it, and you hint on in your write-up that, you know, if he develops power and he really kind of learns how to lift the ball, that, you know, big things can really happen from him because this is like a like a world-class athlete we're talking about. How bullish are you that he's actually going to get to that power and kind of where, like, what do you kind of see him profiling maybe in 2019, for example? What do you think he ends up doing? I'm going to guess you're talking about Christian Pache. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, he's in... I mean, I guess I've said this with a couple of different uh, players. It, it's obviously at a much higher level than some of the ones we've been talking about, but uh, all the elements are there for him to be a, you know, MVP candidate or number one prospect in baseball. Like, the ceiling is that high. And, in, you know, in some ways, like, any player could be the best player in baseball when, you know, uh, Cliff Lee was on waivers and then won a Cy Young, like, four years later. And, you know, Jose Ramirez put up, like, a 5-1 season. And he was, I don't think he was even on, like, you know, prospect lists of a top 300 at one point. So at, at some level, I think the, the, the use of upside as, like, uh, an ex- explanatory tool of, like, oh, this is his 25 percentile to 75 percentile outcome, that's one thing. But saying a guy can't do this, it, it's kind of silly. 
Um, but you can go watch Pache, and if you see him hit balls out like to the left center field gap off the scoreboard in batting practice, if he's lifting the ball that day, sometimes he doesn't. And then he shows you like multiple 80 run times and then throws a guy out at third base and it's like a 70 arm and then is ranging into the gap. Like he's, he does things that could all happen in one day if you just sort of go out to the ballpark to watch him that you just don't even see like even in the big leagues. Like a 70 arm, obviously, by definition, there's, you know, 15 of them in the big league, something like that. And like 70, 80 defenders, there's obviously by definition like just a handful of them. So that already puts him at like a rarefied air where if he like approached the game like Juan Pierre, he would be like a pretty good prospect. But the fact that he is like 6'2", 180 and could play multiple professional sports if he wanted to and can hit the ball out to almost any part of the ballpark in batting practice. Um, the, but the p- potential is almost whatever. Uh, obviously, the fact that he's been in pro ball for a couple years, hasn't hit a home run, still kind of scouts will say like he he'll kind of looks like he's hitting on roller skates, where sometimes his feet will come out from under him because his weight's sort of shifting at inconsistent levels. He has like decent feel for the game. He's very coachable. He's got great makeup. Like I'm sort of bullish on his ability to sort of make these adjustments relative to the average player. Um, obviously, the odds that he turns into an 80 hitter with 60 power, you know, go down each day that he's like not making these adjustments. Um, but I sort of hinted at in some of these write-ups that I think uh, there were some guys in the system that could use a you know different set of eyes and obviously the similar instructors the last couple of years. Um, so I think having some new instructors in there now uh, may be able to help him with his specific issue of sort of lifting the ball and having a stronger base and sort of power-based techniques, which I don't think was necessarily a strong suit of all of the guys on staff. Some of them. Uh, I think we're good at that, but I don't think the ones that necessarily had their hands on Pache on a regular basis. Um, so yeah, he's another guy that if he, you know, if he has a season where he hits 270 with 15 home runs, like all of a sudden he's probably one of the top 10 prospects in baseball. You can kind of scout the stat line at, at that level just because if he can do it, you already know what it's going to look like because you, you can tell everybody, all the scouts and analysts like how it looks now and not even really succeeding in a lot of ways. Um, but Obviously, a lot of things have to happen. He's young. He hasn't done it yet. He's just sort of showing you glimpses. There's a long list of guys that have shown potential and never really done it in this sort of way. So I don't want to get like too far out on my skis. But uh, like I've said a couple times, I feel like if he doesn't even really improve that much, he can just go be a defensive specialist, which these days is a low, low-end everyday player. Uh, and the ceiling of like a six or seven win player, like there's not many guys where you can sort of easily see a path to that. Tuki Toussaint has been a little bit overshadowed in the system that because of how much pitching it is. You mentioned in your list how the wide variance of outcomes that he could show in his career. What do you think is the most likely outcome for him at the major league level? I think he'll probably have a couple seasons where he's in a rotation where he, you know, sort of dominates enough and one to an extent that he, he gets a shot. Um, I, I think he it, it's kind of hard to explain, but I, I feel like certain guys, you watch them pitch and you'll see sort of their approach. Um, like Tukey, I've, I've probably seen him pitch like 20 times. I, I saw him as a sophomore in high school and he's sort of been like a, a big name guy his whole career. So he hasn't been hard to see for a guy that's sort of in the Southeast. Like, like I've been um, early, earlier on in his career, you, you could almost see like a plan where it was like, Oh, I'm going to go fastball, fastball. And if it's two strikes at that point, then I'm just going to keep throwing breaking balls until I strike him out. 
Um, and he's made that adjustment to, you know, start some guys off with change-ups and, you know, throw like a 50 curveball and hold the 70 back for the second AB so the guy doesn't maybe doesn't know that he has that. Or, you know, throw 90-92 sinkers for the first time through the lineup and then go 92-94 and then have 97 when he needs it. So I think that that first version of him, the role is probably reliever because that's how those guys approach the game. And if you're trying to go six innings, 100 pitches, you can't really have that approach with big league hitters. So the fact that he's shown the ability to adjust, I think there's enough there that he's going to get a chance to start. And I think he has like the, you know, the ability and the stuff to do it. That said, because I think his stuff will play up in short stints. Um, and I think there's plenty of sort of uh, generic back end guys that can come in and go through the lineup twice. And then you bring it into your high octane guys. It's kind of where the game's going. The, the amount of guys that have, you know, plus stuff across the board that are throwing 200 innings is shorter and shorter. But the, percentage of the guys that come in after the sixth inning that have plus stuff is like almost all of them now. So I just think the odds that he ends up in that sort of, uh, you know, setup closer, multi-inning, uh, Andrew Miller, like whatever it is kind of role, or just the Swiss army knife, Lance McCullers kind of guy. Um, I, I think that's most likely where he ends up, but I, I think he definitely gets a chance to be in a rotation at some point, whether it's right when he comes up or, you know, in your five or six or, you know, whatever it is. Like, I, I think there's too much there to ignore it, but I think he probably ends up in, in the bullpen in some way. The penalties against the Braves, the uh, specifically the Latin American signing penalties, they're very significant and they're definitely going to hurt. But I don't think many people truly understand how the international system really works. My question is, how severely do you think that this is going to hamper the Braves in finding quality talent, not just premium talent, but quality talent? And is this a kind of situation where you think good scouting can help them make the spending restrictions less impactful than they might be? Um. Sorry, my dog is going on a, <laughs> on a tile floor with a hard bone. It is not a good sign. I'm actually shocked that two alarms on Garrett's phone haven't gone off by now, so you're completely fine. Yeah, well, she, she moved into a carpeted room, so I think we're going to be okay now. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the you know the list that I put up ended up being 32. Um, just ballparking, I would say at least four or five more would have been on there. So it would have been a 36 or 37. Um probably close to 40 uh if the you know the sanctions didn't happen so there's obviously some uh, some pain there i guess for brace fans which is obviously not not a shock to hear and I, I think my ton was you know the biggest of that group um the going forward in the international market obviously when you're limited to ten thousand dollars for what is it, a year or two years i mean you're you're limited a lot in, in the sort of players you can access. And it ran into some brief scouts at the MLB showcase where, you know, ev essentially every player is signing for three or 400,000 or more. And they're just like, what, what are you doing here? And they just kind of laughed. And um, there, there have been some teams like that in the past where they have spent all their money or already have committed to everything. And, but they still go to the showcases because, you know, maybe this guy is the Jeffrey Ramos where he wants a bunch of money and then maybe you can get them later when you have money or, you know, you still got to do the work. But, um, you have to assume that there essentially won't be a real prospect signed for a year or two. I mean, obviously, I guess uh, Encarnacion was, I believe, signed for ten grand or maybe fifteen, but something in that area. So it's not like you can't do it, um, but with a you know a smaller staff at the moment and you know that that sort of limitation, um, 
you just have to assume you're not going to really get a whole lot out of that. You're going to probably going to sign more guys in the draft to fill in the lower levels because if you're getting not real prospects on the DSL team, then fewer guys are going to be coming north to fill those spots in the GCL team, especially after that class where Maiton was signed. Like There weren't spots for domestic players on the short-season teams. And I, I referenced the, the Danville outfield, I think, at various points of the year, had like eight different prospect level outfielders on the roster. Like, <laughs> you had to like be sitting two prospects every night. There were, weren't spots to put them all. Um, so that I don't think will be as much of a problem, uh, just because you can only have so many draft picks, and then having no, essentially no one from the Latin program is, you know, obviously going to make that a little easier to handle. Um, so there's going to be like a, you know, a, a hit at the level of, um, you know, the the wave of talent of guys that are currently in rookie ball. If, if you know, if you don't get three or four high high level high school guys, there's just going to be a hole at that level. Um, but that's pretty far down the road behind the guys that are arguably the best system in baseball. So it's like pretty small potatoes in terms of issues. Uh, going forward to like, I guess it'd be what 2020 when the Braves are like fully instated and you know have all their money and all that kind of stuff. I don't think the agents down there really care. Um, the I mean, if you you have the money and you know whoever ends up you know running the department like has good relationships with Buscones and hasn't backed out of deals and things like that, like. I don't see that as a problem, uh, and I don't think the, you know, what happened to the last regime is going to rub off on whoever ends up running the international department for the new regime because it's like completely different people. Like the, and I also get the impression that the international market that the like the scouts and Buscones and sort of the guys that are doing the deals, uh, they they don't see this as oh my god I'm so shocked to hear this or I'm so mad or I can't believe this or you know I can't my whole world is shaken like that has a really been <laughs> reaction. So it's not like the Buscone's not going to want to go meet with a Brave Scout to talk about his player. Like that, that's it's just sort of like, okay, uh, you know, I don't want to say like it's widespread or everybody's doing it or try to make some sort of justification, but it's everybody knew that sort of stuff could be happening. So hearing that it happened isn't like that there's going to be some like long term ramifications. So yeah, I, I wouldn't worry that. Um, like for instance, the next time the Braves have like a, a pool of five million dollars, that they're not going to be able to get a three million dollar player if they want him because the agent doesn't want to talk to him or something like that. That that's not going to happen. Or if it does, it will be for reasons other than this. Now you mentioned uh, Giancarlo Encarnacion, and <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned him because he's been a favorite of ours since we made that ill-fated trip to Central Florida. Um, when we when we saw him in the GCL. Uh, we saw him basically exclusively at third base, but he, you know, he really stood out. He seems like he can play in the dirt. He was making rangy plays. It seemed like the arm was pretty good, uh, and the ball seemed to he like it seemed like he was making hard contact all the time. Uh, even when he was making outs, it just felt like he stuck out along with Junior Severino, who's no longer with the Braves. He were kind of the two. Those were kind of the two guys that really stood out to us. Uh, how excited should we be about him? And what's the biggest adjustment he needs to make in full season ball? Uh, and I hinted at this in the report. Um, he does hit the ball hard. You, you, you saw that correctly. I can confirm that. Um, he doesn't lift the ball a ton, which is not, which is not unusual for uh, a young, you know, a younger player um, at sort of a you know premium or up the middle position. He was a shortstop uh, in the DSL team. That's kind of why they signed him. From from what I was told, it was, oh, we needed a shortstop, so we just went and signed this guy. We thought he was pretty good, and then like a week later, we're like, oh, this guy's really good. Uh, like, we, like we thought he was better than like ten thousand dollars sign or whatever it was, and then we started you know having him workouts and practices, and we're like, wow, this guy's better than a lot of guys we gave money to. Um, and then I think they thought like, oh, this guy's probably going to fill out, move to third base. We got a bunch of high-profile shortstops, so we'll move him to third. Uh, but yeah, so he hits the ball hard. He runs pretty well. He's a good athlete. He's projectable. He can throw. He can play multiple positions. He has raw power. There will be more. Um, 
he needs to be a little more selective at the plate. Uh, I think he could run into the, that problem where if you're only walking three or four percent of the time, even if you have loft in your swing, you're not going to be able to get to it because you can't sort of pick out the right pitches. Um, and might have an artificially high, you know, guys have artificially high walk totals in A ball and short season because guys can't throw strikes. And so if you're even walking three and four percent at that level, that's, you know, kind of says even more. So, but he's also at the level of like experience and age where that can still happen. If you're 23 in double A, like it's probably not going to improve very much, but he's at the level where it can improve and he's still sort of growing into his body and things like that. Um, the, the other aspect would sort of be the, you know, getting the loft in your swing where he has the kind of power where you want to put the ball in the air. And he has done that yet, but it's also been like a year and a half in pro ball. And the DSL is like basically high school. So, you, you know, you're just working on like putting the ball in play at that point. You're not really trying to like fine tune your launch angle at that at that level. So I, I kind of see him as like a really intriguing like ball of clay as opposed to what are the two adjustments he needs to make. But I would say selectivity and, and lifting the ball would be the two. And obviously selectivity needs to be addressed now we got a squeak toy going. Um, selectivity sort of needs to be addressed quickly, and then the loft can, you know, usually comes a little later. Um, but yeah, those are the, the two things that I think if he can sort of address those, that'll kind of get him like, you know, rising up these lists in the future. Rome's rotation last year was really stacked with not only Anderson, who we talked about earlier, but with Joey Wentz, Bryce Wilson, and um, Tucker Davidson. If all three of them manage to stick as starters, who of the three do you think has the highest ceiling? So you cut off for a second. It was Davidson and uh, who were the other two you said? Uh, Joey Wentz, Bryce Wilson, Tucker Davidson. Um, hmm. I mean, I, I would say Wentz. Uh, Wentz is probably the only one that has a current plus pitch right now with the changeup, and he's probably the best athlete of the group. Um, so I would say he has probably the highest upside as um, you know, the guy that in a traditional sense can have an average or better fastball plus off-speed pitch, an average or better command. And he's also shown an above-average breaking ball. Hold on, now she's chewing on a plastic bottle. This, this is getting out of hand. Um, anyway, so I think traditionally he has the, you know, the upside that, um, in in sort of a traditional scouting sense of, you know, athleticism plus off-speed pitch velocity, things like that. He has those things. I think Bryce Wilson will probably get there first. Um, I, as I sort of outlined in the report, like he's got sort of all the things you're looking for as far as the aggressive approach, the fastball that'll play up in short stints, uh, the movement, um, you know, throw strikes already, all that kind of stuff. And I think he's another guy like like uh, Tukey that may fit best in that sort of you know setup or multi-inning relief role or you know spot starter, even though I think he can start. Um, and Davidson, I think he's not. I mean, he was like a sort of a fringe prospect until uh, this year and uh, sort of slimmed up and the velocity came. And then it sounds like some of the starter traits developed when all of that happened. And so he kind of went from, you know, being found money um, from, you know, just like a nice flyer until a guy that turned into a real prospect. So I think he's a little behind those guys, uh, but not as far. And before the year, I don't think he was even close to those guys. I don't think anybody thought he would even get any starts when the year started. And then he turned into, you know, one of the better prospects. So I think he's a really nice story. And I think Wilson is sort of the, closest to a finished product and then Wentz probably has the highest upside so William Contreras has been a guy that's been getting a lot of love this offseason as the potential fast riser at a position that's been a little bit of a question mark for the last couple of years for the Braves offensively what do you think is going to be the biggest thing that they're going to be looking for him in terms of potentially becoming a top tier prospect in the system He's another interesting guy that um, I would say was obviously ahead of Davidson coming into the year, but um, 
I don't think the you know sort of heavy hitter big time guys that focus on you know the guys that are close to the big leagues had a lot of familiarity with him. They just knew he was Wilson Contreras' brother and you know had some ability. And then this year, I think he got a little more athletic, uh, you know, a little twitchier, a little stronger, you know, a little more mature in sort of his baseball skills. And um, so I think his you know defense arm strength uh, got a little better, raw power got a little better. And I think his sort of feel for hitting um, developed a little more to the point where he's, you know, sort of the four, the four tools that matter, you know, hit power, um, defense and arm are all now project for average or better, uh, which is, you know, pretty rare for like a, you know, a decent athlete in short season to kind of show you all of those already. Um, so, it, you know, it's a little different than Encarnacion where he's already sort of got pretty good plate discipline and he already sort of has sort of gap power in games. You like to lift the ball a little bit more. Um, but like the offensive stuff, like the elements are there. If he just kind of keeps doing what he's doing, I think he'll be fine. And I think the defense already shows the, you know, ability to be above average. Like, I, I don't think he necessarily has a lot of things he needs to work on. I think he's another guy where you could probably scout the stat line that if he, you know, hits better than 260 and, you know, hits eight or 10 or more home runs and you don't hear that he's, you know, been hurt a bunch or that he looks like he's, you know, got less life in the body or anything like he's, you know, on that on that progression. And I think if what he did this year, he did in low A over a full season, he, you know, might be in conversation for top 100s. I think because it was in short season and it was half of the year, not a lot of high profile scouts saw him. He wasn't really seen as a big prospect, uh, even necessarily internally until basically the Danville season started. Uh, so he just doesn't have like that long track record um, of performance and kind of being on the radar, but I, I don't think he's that far away. All right. I have a question about Austin Riley because He's a guy, obviously, we we all get a lot of questions about because the numbers kind of jump off the page, and if someone scouts a stat line or just, you know, sees a couple, you know, gifts on Twitter, he's an exciting player to watch. But there's been kind of, um, there's certainly been some evaluators that have been very concerned to borderline, like, they don't even consider him to be even a, a particularly good prospect because they question his bat speed. And you mentioned in your write-up on him in the top 32 that, you know, his biggest issue was he wasn't able to just clear his hands uh, especially on like premium velocity and being able to really turn on pitches, do you see his bat speed as like a long-term problem, or do you see this as more of a, a correctable mechanical thing that you mentioned in the article? Yeah, I think it's a correctable mechanical thing. I've never had a problem with his bat speed. Um, I think sometimes you can, like a scout can see a player get blown up inside by a guy throwing 93, or you know be laid on it, or you know foul it off to the opposite field and be like, oh probably doesn't have great bat speed and maybe that day he did um but i think there's a little bit and, and oftentimes when you see that that is the reason but sometimes it is his foot gets down late um there's a mechanical thing that's holding back the bat speed a little bit um there's there's alternate explanations um i think when you get a uh, a, a bigger uh sample to work with and especially when you have more knowledge specifically about what the what the guy's working on, what he thinks his issues are, what the sort of, you know, hitting gurus that are going in. Because, I mean, he's a guy that was, you know, a high draft pick. So, like, you know, speaking of sort of the, you know, the heavy hitters in quotes, they were always paying attention to this guy. So, you know, the things he needs to work on um, are something that everyone is aware of. And I, I don't think anybody thought, like, oh, this guy's never going to be able to hit, you know, if reliever comes in throwing 95, like, he's going to have to cheat at the fastball. Like, nobody thought that uh, internally, and I don't I don't think that's true. Um, but there definitely were things that would happen in games that you could see the outcome and say, oh, that's what a guy without good bat speed does. And he's, his swing doesn't look like Gary Sheffield, so it's not 80 bat speed, so maybe a bat speed problem. Um, 
So it's it's not like that's without merit, but I don't think that's the root cause. I think there were some mechanical things that he was working on in the last year uh, to get his hands through on the inside stuff, which obviously I think makes your swing a little quicker because obviously if you're hitting outside stuff but not hitting inside stuff, then that's sort of a longer path, which I think a lot of times slows the bat down. Um, so I think it was more of a mechanical thing. I think it was something that could be fixed. I was actually talking to one of the Braves hitting guys when I was watching him in double A late in the year. And he was telling me one of the things he was working on and like, oh, we're trying to get this. And I don't know if he can, if he can do that, but I think he can do this. And we're working on, you know, the best way to do hit this sort of pitch. And while we were talking about it, he took a ball that was 94 on his hands out to left field. And it looked like plus bat speed. And I kind of looked at him. And I was like, you want him to do that? And he goes, that's what I wanted him to do. And I was like, well, great. This is our fifth day here. We're both going home tomorrow. Like, I'm glad we both got to see it. He's like, yeah, that was great. <laughs> so it was like. It was a very satisfying sort of narrative that I kind of, you know, went in there and you're kind of down around the cage and talking to the coaches and, you know, you know, hearing what, you know, Alex Jackson's working on and um, and Riley and those guys. And then at the end of the five days, you're like, there it is. All right. He still needs to do it more often. Like I'm not saying the problem is solved because he did it that one time, but you saw him do it, you know, against a level that you didn't even think he'd be at double A this year. Um, and, you know, was a guy that was, you know, maybe a, I know a number of teams had him in as a pitcher. Um, so a guy that, you know, was sort of counted out in some ways and then he gets in pro ball and performs and some people still sort of count him out and question him. And, you know, it's not like he necessarily looked physically like a third baseman. He wasn't didn't look like he could be an average third baseman. And then I think a little bit of the football mentality kind of kicked in and he lost some weight and has it sounds like he's continued to clean up the body and look better at third base. And he's another guy that I think similar to Soroka, where you just sort of know the makeup uh, when, when you know the kids some and you're like, oh, the you're saying this kid has to lose some weight and get a little more, uh, you know, athletic and to play third base. It's like, yeah, I think he can do that. Like he, he's done things more difficult than that already. And and if he doesn't, then maybe he'll just go to first base and have more power. But, but I, but I knew he was one of those guys that if you tell him, like there's a famous story that Addison Russell was um, moved to third base when he was on high school team USA. And he was like anointed as the next coming when he was like a freshman in high school and he went to the coach and was like, it was Gavin Cicchini was put at shortstop, uh, who I guess is still a shortstop in pro ball. And he went and asked the coach, like, hey, why am I not playing shortstop? He's like, well, that guy's better than you are. And he's like, why? And he's like, well, you've put on about 15 pounds in the you know the last you know year or so. Like, you, that's the reason. And he goes, oh, okay. And then he lost 30 pounds before the spring came around and, you know, was running plus times when he was running 40 times um, with Team USA. And he's basically been a shortstop the rest of his life. And there's just some kids that you never know, but you have an inclination like, oh, this is probably the kind of guy where if you tell him he can't do something, he's going to go do it, especially if it's like a high profile thing. Like everyone comes to see the super stud Addison Russell and he's not playing shortstop. Oh, what happened? I wonder how he's going to respond to this. And I think Riley's one of those guys. I think Soroka's one of those guys. It's one of the things that the amateur scouting stuff does well, especially with high school players. It's very key when you're sort of projecting even further than you project with a college player where there's, you know, less of a finished product. You have to know the mental makeup of this guy's going to have to make a lot of adjustments. Is he going to be able to? And so I think that's in a lot of ways a separator when you're like, you know, these are the two high school hitters that are going to be off the board. Here's the five we like. You know, this one's a little better than that one. It's just like, no, no, just take the five. Which one has the best makeup? That's probably the one you're, you're going to bet on because the difference today between the two of them tools wise is probably going to be, you know, you want to be able to see it two years from now because I think the makeup's going to drive the guy to the top of that group. And I, I think him and Zerk are good examples of that where if you, you know, redraft those classes now, they obviously go a lot higher. So it, one of the most popular subjects in baseball in the last year, two years or so, is launch angle. And you actually wrote about that in your talk about the Brave system, that you think that a change in hitting philosophy for launch angle can go a long way to helping a couple guys, specifically a guy who's been started 
to be written off a bit by some in Braxton Davidson as well as Brett Cumberland and some others that you think it would make a big difference for them. How much do you think that the hitting philosophy might have played into some of their struggles versus other factors such as lack of talent, work ethic, situation they were in? Uh, I would say the philosophy would necessarily change. I think the um, the tool set uh, and, and sort of mindset of the staff is one thing that if you have a, a little more of a traditional staff um, that when you know big changes come to the game, uh, you know like very strategic things you're seeing in the playoffs where you know pit, you know relievers are coming in the fifth inning. Obviously in the minor leagues it's not that big of a deal because they're they're more sort of trying to get all the pitchers in. Um, but but the idea of like sort of the you know the fly ball revolution or you know, whatever you want to call it, that wasn't a thing that was being taught ten years ago, uh, and wasn't even really a thing that was being taught five years ago, and it's sort of you know I guess sort of considered a cutting edge thing. So some of the benefits of having a traditional staff is uh, or traditional leaning, not not completely traditional. Um, they're going to be a little better at uh, often relating with the players and having you know more experience in the game. They're often going to be older and you know have. Uh, you know, when a guy's struggling, he's going to have like a, you know, an anecdote or story where this is how I struggled in this way and stuff like that. So there's like a lot of benefits to having that. And oftentimes the sort of more progressive instructor um, will be a younger guy that maybe can relate to the kid better and be more interested in the, you know, analytic tools, but then might not have the library of experiences to really hammer home points with the whole group. So it's, it's really just two ends of a spectrum as opposed to good or bad. Uh, And it's not to say that Davidson or Cumberland or, um, who I sort of pinpointed as, you know, guys that hit the ball hard that could maybe benefit from like a guy with a more progressive point of view. Um, they were already hitting the ball hard and hitting it in the air. So it's, it's not like the hitting philosophy has to change uh, so that they're able to do something differently. Um, but the, the idea of having a, an instructor that is open to both the progressive and traditional things and can, uh, you know, points of view and can sort of tailor the hitting approach to either of those, that guy's a little harder to find. And from what I've heard, that's sort of where things are going now with sort of some different staff members in place. And so uh, a guy that has a hitting style that doesn't necessarily mesh with the with the hitting uh, instructors, it'll be a little harder to give him advice and kind of you know tinker with things or maybe give him like the little uh, adjustment that'll really improve what he's doing. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is having a, a group that's closer to that middle ground as opposed to closer to either extreme gives you the ability to maybe uh, connect with all of the hitters as opposed to one type uh, at the expense of maybe the other type. Uh, and so I think then that means the, the hitters on the other extreme will get reached a little better. It doesn't mean they're going to get better uh, or that necessarily that it wasn't talent that was holding them back or that they're just going to be the same hitter going forward. Like, but if there's going to be a change, you would guess that those guys will be affected the most. And Braxton Davidson is also a guy that has, you know, a lot of talent and hasn't quite gotten it there. And so just like a different person, regardless of what their, you know, sort of leaning is, um, you're just hoping that maybe that'll be the thing that sort of clicks or, you know, maybe moving him to first base as opposed to being in the outfield. Maybe that's the thing that clicks like some, there's a number of guys that the thing that hit, that like broke through for them was changing position or, you know, just having a guy say a thing to them differently. And so sometimes just the act of changing the guy will be the thing that gets you there. One of my favorite prospects of the last few seasons has been Israel Wilson. I've kind of fallen in love with the tools and been able to look past the strikeout problems a little bit, but where do you 
see his upside going forward and what does he have to do this season to show you that he's one of the top 30 or so prospects in the Braves system? I mean, he's not that far off now. I think I think once you get outside about the top 20 or 25, it, it, there's just sort of a glut of like 20 of them there that are all kind of like, all right, well, which one of them do you think is going to have a hot first month of the season? That's probably the one you should make 25th. Um, Wilson is an interesting guy. He He's a projectable guy. He's got really loose hands, really quick bat, uh, projects for above average power. Um, he's got bat speed. He runs pretty well throws well enough to play in right field so it's you know wide base of tools obviously his you know gcl debut hit a bunch of home runs and so you could look at that and say oh well if he just you know keeps doing this all the way up then he's gonna be great but the issue is these sort of long-limbed projectable sort of big healthy hack kind of guys they develop later they get to the power in games later they take longer to sort of corral everything and so i think thinking that that sort of player uh, without a lot of pedigree can perform like that as a 17-year-old and he'll just continue performing like that is, you know, kind of naive. And that's kind of what happened with him. And then you also have some of the, you know, just sort of being young and making your adjustments and just sort of the normal, like, you know, maturation process, um, you know, struggles that he had. And I think he's now in a better spot to succeed. And I think he's another guy where you can kind of scout the stat line because the defense and the speed – and the arm like aren't huge parts of his game. So if he's hitting somewhere above 250 and has you know somewhere above 10 home runs, like he's probably succeeding at all these things because we know the tools are there, we know how it looks. Um, and so if he's like performing in games and you know staying on the field, staying in the lineup, and all that kind of stuff, um, then he's probably doing all this stuff right. Like it, like it looks so good if he's performing, then you know it's looking good when he's performing. Uh, and he's another guy where it's just like if you can, if you could tell me in the first half of this year he's going to hit 260 with 10 home runs, then he would like be 20th on the list or something. Like he'd be pretty good. You just you've seen so many guys over the, you know the last decades that have had you know real nice loose swings with power that haven't quite hit in games enough, and they just never figure it out. So you kind of hedge a little bit when there's not like you know shortstop like there is for Encarnacion. Wilson's already in the corner and he's already striking out you know more than. Encarnacion was, even though the tools are comparable. So if you could tell me Wilson's going to perform like that and then Encarnacion's going to hit 220 with two homers, then, you know, they'd be in different, you know, flipped at least, uh, if not more extreme than that. So, I, I, yeah, I think there's plenty there, and he's just a guy where you just got you just want to see him be on the field, perform, you know, make those adjustments and sort of see those tools be realized uh, to sort of buy in. All right, Kylie, we have one more question, and then we'll let you get back to, you know, wrangling that dog of yours, and we'll let you plug anything that you want to plug. <laughs> She's now licking an empty bowl, which I think is a passive-aggressive way to say I'm hungry. <laughs> well, the last question, and I can't let you go without asking, even though he's no longer a Brave, but it's no secret that Kevin Maiton's debut wasn't as expected, but he did show some progress late in the year. My question is if your evaluation of him overall and long-term has changed and what you think might have caused some of the struggles last year. Uh, I think he was a victim a little bit of the expectations, which I guess I probably contributed to because I wrote about him when he was 14. Um, but Things happen. Yeah, <laughs> hey, you got to be ahead of the curve. Uh, you're not going to be right. Uh, I mean, in this case, I said he was, you know, the best 16 or the best projected 16 year old in a while, which he was signed as though that was the case. So I guess I was right in that way. Um, but the I think the problem and you I, th I think you've probably seen, you know, Jim Callis and some of the other um, prospect guys point this out. 
that when a guy like Vlad Jr. gets like hyped and everyone gets excited, and then he comes out and goes to the Appy League and just rips rips it apart at 17, and then goes to like both levels of A ball at 18, that that creates the expectation that that's what's supposed to happen. Or like Mike Trout becomes the number one prospect in baseball after going in the 20s after like one year in pro ball, and people are like, oh, that means you could get a generational prospect in the 20s. It's like, yeah, like every 30 years you could. Like the right. idea that that you can pick a you know a high upside guy in the 20s and then he just reaches his upside the next year like is kind of insane and i guess in trout's case like was reaches way higher than his upside in one year like it's like definitely a like a 150 percentile outcome so i think the idea that my could be hyped as you know the best 16 year old and you know some time then the expectation becomes he will perform as well as the best 16 year old in some time which the idea is you become the best 16-year-old because of people projecting what you'll be when you're 25, not what you'll be when you're 17. Like, scouts would have picked other people if they were trying to guess who would have the best line in the Appy League as a 17-year-old. Um, that's not what they were trying to do. And I think uh, Kevin had some, like, sort of normal growing issues where, you know, he physically got bigger in, like, a natural maturation way. Like, at one point, I think he had put on, like, 10 or 15 pounds and his body weight was lower. And I think at one point, I think his body fat got higher and then it would, you know, find a problem and then you make the adjustment. Uh, but just like that happening during the season, obviously, is not like something you project to happen. It just sort of happens sometimes. And for a kid in America, I think, uh, you know, weight going up and down is less of an issue when you sort of have access to food at a younger age. That's, you know, sort of more free and probably fattening and you sort of learn some of those things. And, you know, Kevin had a little different experience. Obviously, he was in a country where, like, the whole country's falling apart right now. And I think he's, like, you know, in some ways, some of the players don't necessarily want to go home. So he's in a strange country. He doesn't speak the language. Like, like the idea that because he didn't hit 280 with 10 home runs in Danville that he's, like, less now or because he was 10 pounds heavier than people wanted him to be, um, it, it, I don't know. It's, I think it seems incredibly short-sighted. Uh, but in the idea of, oh, he was supposed to be the 50th best prospect in baseball, and he looked like, you know, the 250th. It's like, that's also not like a huge margin. It just seems like a lot of um, of overreaction to a, a half a season of a teenager who, you know, normally would be not even uh, being watched by scouts if he was in high school at this age. Um, like, I think Junior Severino did a lot of the similar things where it was like, oh, he's got crazy bat speed and crazy power, and he can – you know, maybe play shortstop. And he had some games where he was just swinging out of control with some stuff and other games where he just like squared everything up and looked like a dynamo. It's like, yeah, that's kind of what Kevin did. Uh, but people thought he was going to look like Vlad Jr. and hit everything. He didn't do that. And the development process is not always like a linear thing, like the, you know, the way that Trout or Vlad Jr. would make you think. Um, so I think there was definitely some, you know, sort of, you know, mistakes or some things that could have gone differently. And now he can learn from that. And obviously it won't be with the Braves. But I, I informed some of what Eric Longhagen wrote in his Angels list. And I think we still had him as a 50, which was somewhere between 100 and 140 on the overall list, which I think most people don't have him that high. Uh, but we both thought it was an overreaction, um, similar to when a guy is supposed to be the number one pick in the draft. Uh, and then goes to pro ball and his velo is down a couple ticks and all the pro scouts that have never seen him before are like, this guy sucks. And it's like, yeah, you don't really know why he was the number one pick. You just know that he was right in front of you and the guy you saw today isn't that guy. And so you just sort of came down on him. And it's pretty hard for a 17-year-old to blow you away on a field where everyone is three years older than he is, if not more. Um, so I guess the short version of that, which I definitely didn't give you, is I think it was incredibly <laughs> overblown and... The, the idea that what happened after half of the season should 
drastically change the opinion from before he signed, I think is, you know, a little silly. But if he's doing this three years from now, then, yeah, you should worry about it. Um, but I don't even think we're really close to that yet. Well, that definitely wasn't the short version, but we love you even more for it. We really appreciate it. Uh, Kylie, uh, obviously all of our listeners, please make sure you read uh, really all of Kylie's content because it, you, if you, if, even if it's not Braves related, which I know a lot of you, that's where your, your focus is, you learn a lot, lot of things about how scouting happens and the kind of the overall opinions and how in, the industry works from reading Kylie's stuff. So re- read the top 32 Braves prospects list. Uh, it's, it's one of the best lists you'll read. Uh, period, and you know, regardless of the team, and Kyla does great work. Kylie, is there anything in particular you want to plug before we let you go? Uh, not really. It's just the uh, Kylie McD at Twitter, and then I, which you said I'm I'm at Fangraphs. Actually, I have one a little nugget for you guys, and as a, I guess a reward for any listener who actually made it to the end of this thing, because <laughs> I realized I did a lot of talking. So the game I was at last night was uh, two high school pitchers, Carter Stewart and Mason Denneberg, who are both going to go in the first round. And I won't tell you every scout that was there, but Tom Glavin was one of them. Hmm. All right, you've heard it. Yeah. Here. you heard it here first, guys. I, Kylie, we really appreciate that, and uh, I apologize in advance for the tweets that you're going to get about uh, Mason Denneberg and, Car- and Carter Stewart, because a lot of Braves fans I have a feeling are going to be asking you guys, asking you. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, really appreciate you coming on. For our listeners, if you want to find out when we're posting new shows, you can follow us at Road the Number Two Atlanta on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Sound. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Make sure you subscribe. Leave you know nice reviews. We'd really appreciate it. Kylie, thank you. Matt Garrett, thank you for coming out and helping me interview Mr. McDaniel. Uh, and until next time, guys, we'll see you on the road. <laughs>